Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey guys, welcome to Marriage and Martinis. I'm Adam. Here's Danielle. Hello. And can you hear the kids? I can hear the kids. I've given up on trying to not hear the kids. I think our neighbors have probably heard the kids a bunch of times. Well, if you can hear the kids and the dogs right now, I'm sorry. I'm not going to try to shut them up because yeah. I'm done <laughs> trying to. Oh, oh, there we go. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. I've given up. <laughs> I'm just, I'm starting to lose it. <laughs> yeah. I think everyone's starting to lose it. We, we have the chance to talk to so many amazing professionals. We started off the week with one parenting episode and thank you all so much for your amazing feedback on that. Um, I never take it for granted that we are able to talk to all these amazing influences out there. Um, and this one is one of those, um, Lisa Demore is one of those people who I was truly like I couldn't believe I got to talk to her the chance to sit down and ask her questions that um, I know that you know people all over have been waiting to ask her because she's such an incredible um, voice for raising especially teenage girls in today's society if you haven't read her books Untangled and Under Pressure I highly recommend it Um, but today's episode wasn't the original questions I had for her because when I first planned the episode, um, it, they were based on solely on her books that I wanted to ask her, and it was pre-coronavirus. So now it's a little bit of a different circumstance. I had a different set of questions that I wanted to ask her, and I asked our audience to send me some. Um, so I had to skew it a little bit, but it is phenomenal. She's fabulous. And I ask her everything about from what we're all dealing with with social media to, um, you know, kids behavior and how we can sort of keep them in check right now and keep ourselves in check. And she just offers so much great insight. Um, even if you don't have a teenage girl, if you have a teen boy or a tween or, you know, some someone a little bit younger than that, this is an episode that you don't want to miss. I loved everything she said. She calmed me. She made me feel better. She made me feel like we're going to be okay. Um, and we are. So um, I'm so excited for you to hear this episode with Dr. Lisa Demore. Um, she is the monthly adolescence columnist for the New York Times. She's a regular contributor to N- um, CBS News. She maintains a private practice. She speaks all over the world. Um, and she's just a wonderful, wonderful person to have as a voice during this pandemic and also as a parent, you know, as a parent all the time. So enjoy Lisa Demore. Thank you so much for being with us today, with me today. I'm delighted to be here. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I was just saying to you, I had a whole separate set of questions before when I first found out that I was going to have the 
privilege of interviewing you. Um, and they have completely changed now, considering the circumstances. And um, I asked our audience also some things that they wanted uh, me to ask you about. Um, and I know that you have a so you know a general philosophy and everything that you talk about in your books. Um, but I guess right now everybody's mind is on just getting through this current period. We can't. I feel like we can't think about before and we can't think about after. You know, to think about before is too depressing. To think about after is too unknown. So we're just sort of concentrating on the day by day. Um, so right now, I just wanted to talk a little bit about, for those of us who have, I have a 14-year-old girl, um, and your books obviously are such a tremendous help on so many levels, but I wanted to first talk, obviously, about social media, because right now, that is their world. Um, I think that is the one thing across the board that we can all admit is both getting us through this and making us go insane. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. so, so what, what are your thoughts right now as far as how social media should be playing a part? Well, like you said, in some ways, thank goodness for it, right? I mean, that. can you imagine if this had happened when we were teenagers? We would have hijacked the home phone all day. Yeah, all day. I have thought about that so many times. So um, teenagers are deeply connected to their friends, want to be connected to their friends, and thank goodness they have these elaborate ways to do it, that there's never been a better time in some ways to do it if they cannot be physically together, which they cannot be. Um, So what I would say is that things that are true in non-COVID conditions are just more true now. And so there's lessons we can take for how we're gonna manage social media now that are very close to how we should be managing it all the time and how we should be thinking about it all the time. So the first lesson, and this will be very reassuring to the majority of parents, is that what we see in terms of the research on how kids use social media is that what's happening for them online tends to mirror what happens for them in real life. So kids who have happy, supportive, good in-person relationships tend to spend a lot of their social media time deepening those, you know, playing in those spaces. I mean, it can look pretty superficial to grownups, but it's fun for them and it's benign. Sometimes, you know, you look through a text thread and you're like, what is this? But it's it's benign. I mean, it's not, you know, um, it may not be like brilliant, but there's no harm being done in this. So when we look at the data on like the proportion of kids we're talking about, we're talking about the gross majority. Like they're really most kids get along well in real life and then handle themselves well online and they use their um, social media relationships as a parallel for that. The corollary is that when kids are struggling with their in real life relationships, they tend to actually also carry that over to online. So either um, they're having a lot of conflict in person and then they're carrying out a lot of conflict online, either in terms of being in the bully position or a victim position or both, or just mixing it up a lot or they're not that well connected in real life. And then their online time is spent connecting to people they don't know in real life, which is not often our favorite. So what I would say is the majority of parents can relax a little bit right now and trust that their kids generally get along along well in person. And then that's just being, that's taking over now entirely in the social domain, um, in social media. The kids I'm worried about are the kids who struggle in real life 
because now all they have is online. Yeah. And that like, so let's just narrow it down. And there's a recent study, this is about 6% of kids. So this is not an overwhelming majority. This is a small number, but I'm really worried about that 6%. So for those kiddos, I would say, okay, they definitely probably need a little more monitoring right now. That if their social lives have become entirely talking to strangers or getting into conflict, that's a space that an adult wants to be in and wants to be hovering around or you know limiting or talking with them about or thinking with them about especially right now when we can't you know take benefit of like the you know counselors at school who might be able to do some social engineering and get them on a great lunch table and connect them with super kids you know we've lost that for a little while so let's tighten the screws on those kids social media is probably where i'd put our energies mm-hmm. Then there's the question of how much, right? And this is always right. It's not just twenty four seven. So, all the pediatricians I know and myself are always in agreement with what strikes people as a fairly rigid rule. And I can say I am not rigid as a psychologist, but this is a rule that I am completely on board with all the time. I don't think tech should ever be in a kid's bedroom, ever, in the 24-hour day. It's a lot easier to establish this early as opposed to try to walk it back. But if it were my, if I were the queen of the universe, I would have all parents upon giving any tech to their kids say, okay, well, here's your phone. It never crosses your bedroom threshold. Here's a computer. It never crosses your bedroom threshold. Um, So that's how I think it should be all the time. Now we're in this weird moment where kids are like taking English class in their bedroom, right? And that may be the only quiet place. And so then, of course, that's what they should do. Yeah. So what I would have parents do universally and certainly now is get the tech out of the bedroom. And then if they have to make an exception and be on their computer in their room during the day, because that's the quiet place, it has to come out. Um, There's this interesting question then about like, what if you've been pretty loose about this and now you want to walk it back? Um, This may be a parenting stunt that not very many parents can pull off, but I would say, okay, use COVID-19 to make this pivot. Use COVID-19 to say, you know what, now it's all screens. We have to have some limit somewhere. The limit is going to be your bedroom, that it does not follow you into your room at night. But I am... I have looked at this research in every way and there is no research that suggests that it's good for a kid to have any tech in their room. And there is so much research that suggests that like it causes problems on so many levels and the grown-up shouldn't have it in their rooms either. So it's not just a kiddo rule. It's a family rule. Uh huh. Okay. And on the other side, what you were saying about, um, for kids who maybe aren't, it's not so much we're worried about them talking to strangers or we're talking, we're worried about them um, getting bullied, but they're just kids who are sort of thriving in this introvertedness, or I shouldn't say thriving, sort of maybe hiding in this introvertedness um, and spending a ton of time in their room and everything. And we're worried that they aren't socializing enough. That there are kids, I mean, you know, my daughter is extremely introverted. Um, she, you know, she has her few friends that she talks to and everything. But yeah, on the on the other side, in some ways, I'm sort of like, okay, at least at school, she's talking to acquaintances. You know, she's forced to have conversations and interact with people. What about the the kids who are really just, you know, maybe maybe even more removed than usual? 
do we just, is it, is there just nothing we can do right now? And we have to sort of just let this be the time that they just are disconnected or is there more that we could be doing? Well, you said the magic word about your daughters, which is she's got a couple good friends. Mm -hmm. And when we look at the data under normal conditions about the happiest kids, they have one or two good friends. Large social groups are not necessarily better for kids. Um, having a very vast social network is often quite stressful for kids. Um, a lot of it comes down to trying to then maintain all of the alliances and happinesses within that social network. You know, as soon as you get over two or three kids, like one of the subtitles in Under Pressure is number, numbers bring drama. Like, you know, that's a section, numbers bring drama. As soon as you got five kids, there's going to be drama. You know, not all five like one another equally, two like each other more than they like the other three. You know, I mean, there's always something. So separate from COVID, separate from all of this, if your kid has one or two good friends, you're good to go. She's good to go. He's good to go. The, the data are actually on that kiddo's side. Then we get to the issue of introversion, which is real, very real. And um, I very rarely prescribe to pithy sayings in psychology, you know, that humans are so complicated that I'm like, no, no simple saying will, you know, could capture them. But there's a couple. And one of them is that extroverts recharge by being with other people and introverts recharge by being alone. So let's first of all norm, recognize that introversion is a totally normal human trait, that there's nothing, nothing worrisome about introversion and no grounds for concern if a person is introverted. The world tends to prefer extroverts, but that doesn't mean introverts have anything wrong. In fact, they're often I'm married to one and I'm raising one. So I'm like, I'm a big fan. <laughs> All right. um, and the other thing is, this is an enormously taxing time for all of us. We are flat out, most of us, emotionally, psychologically. I am feeling, I am hearing other people say they have never been so tired. I mean, just that there's something so profoundly depleting about all of this. And I don't know if it's the constant sense of frustration and the loss of routines and the accrual of hassles, but this is exhausting. So if we go to that, um, that truism that introverts recharge by being alone, the fact that an introvert might be quite introverted right now is probably just evidence that they're as tired as everybody else. And they are using that introversion to recharge. For me, there is a world of difference between a child who has no friends and a child who has one or two good friends. I worry not at all about the kid with one or two good friends. I worry tremendously about a child with no friends. Mm. Well, that certainly makes me feel a lot better because you see, especially right now, and with my boys, especially with, you know, they're playing Xbox and they're playing and it's all social media based. And like you said, that can be a problem too, because it's a group of 14 kids playing, like you said, there always ends up being drama and stuff. But it is true because with my eight-year-olds, especially, um, we have started, we've told him he can only do one-on-one -on -one virtual playdates because it was getting to be where he was getting off the phone crying every single time. It was too much. Um, okay, we, you talked about being the tiredness. One of my friends said, you have got to ask her do I have to wake my daughter up at 4 p.m.? <laughs> you know, I mean, these kids are, a lot of them, first of all, are staying up late at night because that's the only time they can have any privacy or, um, but what, how, what's the difference between 
we need to let them just be and we're all feeling exhausted and I'm going and napping twice a day sometimes. Yeah. Um, so I'm just wondering, where's the line? Like, and, and where is the line between they're napping a lot and now they're just maybe depressed? Okay. So these are great questions. So um, kids should not be up all night and sleeping all day. Full stop. <laughs> like, like that, that's not okay. Um, that they should be following some rough, rough semblance of being awake during daytime hours. And, and I think that's worth enforcing. But you said something really interesting, like that that's where they're getting their privacy. Okay, well, they do need privacy and they deserve privacy and they typically have it all day long at school. They are not subjected to our intrusions during the school day under normal conditions. So what I would recommend is that we let kids know when they are off the clock during the waking day from our intrusions, that we try to replicate some version of that. Uh, this is, of course, much harder. We're all in the house together. Um, they may need our help with school. We may think they need our help with school. But I would really try to create parameters during the day from 10 to 3, you know, from depending on the age of the child, you know, 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. or 8 to 4. Maybe the amount of friction you're having will determine this. Like if there's a lot of friction with a teenager, they probably need to be off the clock longer. And what I would say to that kiddo is, so long as you are taking care of your business in those hours, and it will largely be school business right now, if you're taking care of your business, we will stay out of your business. You can have all the privacy you want. Um, then be clear when they are on the clock, when we can rightly intrude on them. And it may be around the same times we usually do. So they do deserve and need privacy and they shouldn't have to stay up all night to get it. The other thing though is kids need, teenagers need nine hours of sleep a night. Middle schoolers need 10 hours of sleep a night. Elementary school students need 11 hours of sleep a night. So what I am seeing is teenagers are finally getting something in the neighborhood of the sleep they need. So true. And they are all coming into this with sleep deficits. So the reason they can sleep 12 hours or 13 hours is because they are so behind on their sleep. So I have been very comfortable with the idea of teenagers getting a lot of sleep, trusting that as they pay off that sleep deficit, their um, sleep will start to you know, get closer to the nine hours. But nine hours is what they should reasonably be getting. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Right. And I think we could, most of us can probably say on a regular school night, our children are not getting that. Um, that's a very good point. And it, yeah, you said the exhaustion is just, so a little bit, we just need to be forgiving of them and let them have that time to just be lethargic and, and just, I don't know, just catch up. It's really, I, I'm sort of fascinated by the exhaustion piece of this. And, and I can parse it as a psychologist. I mean, I think I know some of the elements. You know, one is um, adaptation is hugely stressful. 
to good or bad things. And this has been a period of extraordinarily rapid and massive adaptation for everybody. You know, we don't do anything in our lives the way we did it a month ago. I mean, that's pretty dramatic. And also pretty um, quick. You know, as I think back to a month ago, I feel like all of this unfolded in about 48 hours. I would say about 24 hours in, I could see that in the next 24 hours, big stuff was gonna go down. But you think like most transitions of this scale, we have a much longer runway. You know, if you think about like taking a new job or going off to college or moving, you're sort of preparing mentally for months before you make such a big transition. So the speed and the scope and the scale of this transition is so much adaptation that that is taxing. And then decision-making is taxing, really taxing. And, um, you know, we've lost our routines and routines are basically an established set of decisions that you've made and don't remake every day. You don't decide when you're getting up. You don't decide when you're exercising. You don't decide when you're having your first coffee under normal conditions. We are now deciding, should I shower now? Should I exercise now? Um, oh, I was going to do this now, but now I can't. I mean, like all day long, I am inventing my day, yeah. which I never. So we're just tired. And then I started to look at some of the research on this. Sleep is weird right now. Um, people are reporting a lot of dreaming. People are having pretty intense, crazy dreams. Yeah. <laughs> um, I personally, I'm a good sleeper. I am having a much more, I would say almost porous sense of sleep. Like I can tell I'm thinking all night and I can't tell which of that thinking is happening awake and which of that thinking is happening asleep. So it's, I, I'm not saying I'm not getting lots of sleep, but I'm, it's, it's an intense experience. Mm -hmm. So like we can just be gentle with ourselves and our kids. Up and you're like, oh, right. This again. Yeah. So, you know, so even waking up, whereas we're usually, and there's not really any big impetus to get us out of bed and going because where are we going? Oh, down to the kitchen or to the couch or so. Uh, yeah. And you talk a lot and you talk in your books um, about disappointment with with kids, um, you know, which is huge on a regular day, dealing with, you know, colleges and teams and everything. This is a whole different type of disappointment that a lot of them are dealing with between graduations and proms and um, just the daily disappointment, even of, you know, kids have birthdays or they were so, so much disappointment right now. And so much of, well, I don't know if you're going to get to do that this summer right now. I can't tell you even yes or no. So um, can you talk to us a little bit about how we can navigate that right now? Sure, sure. So, I mean, this is intense. This is a lot of loss and a lot of disappointment. And and I, I also think even when we're being empathic about it, right, that it's a big deal to lose graduation, a big deal to lose prom, a big deal to lose, you know, my kid spent six weeks getting ready for a convention that got canceled, you know, and, and really like she was working really hard in advance of that. So, I mean, like big things, even when we're empathic, I think we can still go a little further because prom and graduation and those things, like in retrospect, we're like, yeah, I mean, it was cool, you know, but it, I don't know that we really remember what it was like. And what my experience, my understanding is for teenagers is those sort of special events are like the beacon on the hill that gets them through the slog of school. So when you have a, you know, a, a high schooler in January who is just hating what they're doing, they're thinking about what they're going to wear to prom. 
right? And when you have, you know, a kid who's just like making their way through February and the dregs of February, you know, they're imagining the graduation party. And it's, it's that kind of um, the daydreaming and the fantasy and the looking forward to that gets kids through the, um, the tedium that can be part of just being a teenager. And so um, these are much bigger losses, I think, than sometimes we we appreciate as adults, that these have been entertained in their minds and built up in their minds and held out for them as the, as the carrot at the end of a very long um, path. So it's not just another dance. It's not just another party. Like they're very special. Um, so what I'm interested in is that we cannot fix this, that we cannot um, change this outcome. It is what it is. There can be very tender and sweet attempts, you know, to do something like, you know, a sweet little, you know, who knows what in July. <laughs> right. We don't know. Right. It will not be. It will not be. It will never make up for what they've lost. And what I'm interested in right now is the fact that we should never underestimate how much discomfort our kids can handle. Our kids can actually handle much more discomfort than we ever usually ask them to bear. And I want us to be really careful about treating our children as though they are more fragile than they actually are. And I actually, and this may seem Pollyanna-ish, but I don't feel that way about it. I almost, given that we have no choice, why don't we go ahead and embrace this opportunity to help our kids practice tolerating a fairly high level of discomfort. And um, I was just talking with some high school seniors and I said to them, you know, you're getting good at tolerating a lot of uncertainty right now. You know, it's the uncertainty you, you described, like we can't tell you what June looks like. And I said, going to college requires tolerating a lot of uncertainty. So you're going to be better at that now. And they were like, that actually helps. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so I, I am really um, firmly of the mind that mental health is not defined as feeling good all the time, that mental health is defined as having the right feeling at the right time and being able to withstand it. Mm-hmm. So that's what a lot of kids are doing. And they should be made to feel some sense of pride in the accomplishment of being able to withstand more than they knew they could. So we should be pointing that out to them. Like, look at what you're able to, you know, would you ever have thought that you could have handled this and look at you handling it? And I mean, maybe at times they're not, but um, but sort of pointing out to them also that, you know, that they don't have to be happy all the time. No. And that they cannot be, right? So I think we could say, look, this stinks. This absolutely stinks. There's, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I am so impressed to watch you handle this. I can't make it right. You can't make it right. But I'm watching you find your way through this pretty tough time. You're discovering strengths in yourself that you didn't know you had. I'm discovering strengths in you. I have not had a reason. You know, we haven't had a reason to see them displayed. And then I think we can do for them what was successful in my conversation with these seniors, which is to say, oh, and by the way, there's a payoff that um, when 
we, and we know this from the research literature, when people endure difficult circumstances, when they are able to get through difficult things, they're more resilient in the face of new difficulties. So what happens is crises, and this is a crisis, they recalibrate our yardstick for what constitutes a crisis going forward, right? So I think about like next year when there's a snow day, one snow day, right? <laughs> you know, what used to feel like a crisis is going to be like whatever. Yeah. Um, next year, when the barfy flu goes around your school, whatever. Right? Right. Totally, <laughs> it's so true. And so that's the piece that can't get lost in this. They're like, there's growth. This stinks, and there's growth. And appreciation now. There's going to be a different appreciation for those little things that none of us appreciated, I think, and we all took for granted. So, um, yeah, so hopefully that will be a, a part of it also. Um, it's so true. And I wanted to ask on the other end about we were talking about, um, you know, somebody getting uh, left out on social media and everything. The other part that I wanted to talk about is that we also have to remember that, you know, our kid might be one of those kids who is causing some of this. So to lay some groundwork now that they are on social media, all, I mean, that is literally their only link to the outside world. Um, what sort of guidelines should we be telling our kids about what's okay behavior and what's not okay as far as socializing and everything online? I know that's a big question. Well, because part of it is at some level, like they're going to do it, you know, short of like being bullying and awful, right? Like they, no one can be bullying and awful. No one can right. attack another child who cannot defend themselves. I mean, like none of that's okay. But then you're talking about sort of a gray area of maybe not including everybody right. or um, things like that. So the first thing that we have to tolerate as adults is that our kids are just going to have to figure a lot of this out, right? That we would like for them to be good upstanding citizens, but the, the nuances and the dynamics are usually beyond our perception. You know, that even if you were to monitor every darn thing your kid did online, it would still be probably pretty hard to fully grasp, you know, the meanings to them of these various interactions. The rule online, I think, should be the same as the rule in real life, which is you do not have to like everybody. There's no way you're going to like everybody and you're not going to want to hang out with everybody equally. You have to be polite. Like that is that is the absolute lowest bar is polite. And I, um, I go with the word polite, even though it's a little nicey-nicey girl-girl, which is not usually my bag, um, because it's very concrete, right? When we say to kids, you have to be respectful, they're like, well, what does that mean? You know, it's a little vague. Um, and, and I actually think it's a little bit of a high bar. You know, like, I can be polite to people I don't respect. Like, that's the standard I hold for myself. And they may not actually respect every kid, but they still have to be polite to those kids. So I think that the... Um, the standard I would articulate is you need to be polite um, everywhere you go, no matter where it is, um, online or in real life. And then I think we kind of have to trust they're going to sort it out. Mm -hmm. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. 
Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com. Yeah. I know it's so hard right now with this. This feels so like I just everything feels so chaotic. It's it's hard to uh to make sense of it all. Um a lot of us do a lot of fighting with our teenagers, a lot of, you know, especially right now when we're with them 24/7 and we're we are fully seeing every issue that they have, every bad mood, every, there's no break. And we're getting the the benefits also of the time with them, you know, the, the good times also. But as far as punishment and everything goes, I know, number one, we don't want to be taking away social media, I would assume, because that is their only link to the um, to the outside world. Is it, would we just say right now, all of this is punishment enough? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like just sort of, we don't need to be there. The ramifications of this whole thing is already taxing. So maybe we need to back it up with the, you know, with the punishments. Um, I'm not much for punishment, <laughs> to tell you the truth. I, I mean, I, I, you know, I sort of feel like, uh, you know. Or consequences, I should say, maybe more than punishments. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think consequences are valuable, um, especially if they're reparative, right? I mean, if you can fix something, you know, if, if you say like, look, you, you really hurt your little sister's feelings, like you gotta go find a way to make that right. You know, like that to me would feel like the right kind of consequence. Um, but what I would say is, if the issue is that they're acting like jerks to us, that's an issue. Like, the, the, I don't think there's ever any excuse for treating people badly, um, even your parent, even under COVID-19 conditions. Um, and, and there's two reasons why we really wanna um, push back on that. Number one is no one should act that way. <laughs> like, and, and I really feel like there's not rules for how you act at home and rules for how you act everywhere else. Like. No one will ever think our kids are as cute as we think our kids are. We need to use our home life to teach them how to function in the outside world. So I, I feel very strong about that. The other, though, if that's not enough, is that kids know when they're getting away with acting like a jerk and they don't feel good about it. They actually don't like not being called on behavior that they know is inappropriate. And they usually will ratchet it up until somebody does. So then, okay, so then the question is like, well, so how do you stop it? So the first thing I would do is when a kid's acting like a jerk, um, one very light touch is to say, I'm gonna pretend like I didn't hear that. And it really um, makes it clear that they can start again, that you assume that their impulses got the better of them, and that if they can take a beat, they could try again in a more appropriate way. Um, Another version of that would be to say, look, you have every right to be mad, but I'm not a punching bag. You can talk to me about being mad. You cannot show me by being mad at me when I don't have it coming. Um, if you do have it coming, say, look, you, I get it that you're angry with me. Other parents are saying their kids can go out. I'm saying you, your kid can't go out. You have every right to be angry with me, but there are appropriate and inappropriate ways to get angry with me. You can say, I'm really pissed, mom. Like, this stinks. And I can say, I get it and I'm still gonna make this rule, but you can't talk to me in a nasty tone or call me terms or anything like that. So it's not the mood per se, it's how it arrives into the relationship. And 
And the goal, I guess, in parenting, like just as like the goal in mental health is not that everybody feels great all the time. The goal in parenting isn't that our kids treat us beautifully all the time and we feel great about it. The goal is that we use our interactions to teach them how they're supposed to act in the world and to take their errors and give them do-overs. Um, but I would never assume a kid doesn't have a reason for what they do, right? They may be very angry. They may feel that whatever we've asked for is grossly unfair. Um, I think it's really interesting right now. I think a lot of them are really mad and they don't even know who to get mad at, right? I mean, like, right. who do we get mad at about? And now at least they see that they're, in the beginning, I think there was this gray area of some parents were letting their kids out, some parents weren't. If your kid was one of the ones who wasn't getting let out, then you were the one who was sort of like getting their anger. Now at least they see, okay, this is across the board, um, mm -hmm. which I guess makes it in some ways easier. And yeah. And now as we are sort of, going to maybe be heading back in that direction of those gray areas as we start to loosen up the stay at homes, whenever that's going to be, we might start to deal with that again, where some parents are feeling more comfortable to let their kids, you know, go to the beach or go to the mall or whatever. Or I can't even fathom what, how we're going to, you know, do all that. But but we just need to stick to our guns as far as, you know, as far as what we feel or how are we, because we're going to be navigating that all again, maybe almost harder because now they've been like locked up for so long that, you know, that it's going to be even harder, I think, to keep them in. Well, I hope, first of all, that, um, you know, it's, it's unfortunately or fortunately, I don't know, it's been very state by state in terms of the rule. Um, so I'm in Ohio and um I, I feel very, I said to my husband, I was like, I don't have any real right to be proud of how Ohio has handled this. Like, I didn't have any part in it, but like, you know, Ohio has been very, um, gotten a lot of praise. The, the governor and his team have gotten a lot of, and I think much well-deserved praise for how they've handled it. And we have this fabulous medical director, Dr. Amy Acton. She's like now like a, a, like a local, like a huge celebrity in the state. So what I trust is there will be medical people who lay down the laws, right? As the laws change or lay down the, you know, they won't be laws, but, you know, lay down the parameters. So the first thing is I think parents should just defer to the experts. Look, this is not my call. I am not an epidemiologist. I'm going to go with what the experts say. The experts are saying you are not to do this. So that's what we're going with, right? So there is, there's a neutral in here. Right, it's not like parents are arbitrarily making these calls. Like they they shouldn't have to, and I don't think they'll be asked to. But then, if they're like, "Yeah, but so and so's parent doesn't care what Dr. Amy Acton has to say," then I think the first fallback position for the parent who's holding the line is to say, "We're getting this advice so that we do not contribute to hospitalizations and deaths." That is like. It's not even about your health at this point, it's about everybody else's health. And I know you, and I know you are a good kid. And if you ever had a question in your mind, if you contributed to a hospitalization or death of a stranger, not even somebody, that you would not feel comfortable with that. So I'm not gonna go for that idea because you would not want that for yourself and I know it. Like, so just like appeal to the better side of the kid. And there's always a great side of a kid. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. And I think that making them feel a little bit also, then one nice thing about all of this also is that we, we are sort of, we can say to them, this is our, our part in this, our role in this, and we all have one. Um, and holding us all accountable is, it does sort of help. And I don't know, maybe it makes them feel a little bit like they are doing good, which I think is 
responsibility. It's social yeah. responsibility, right? I mean, this is widespread social responsibility. And and I think there's a lot to be said for reminding them, look, I'm not keeping you home because of your health. I mean, that's a piece of it. Yeah. But you're actually statistically probably pretty safe. I'm keeping you home because I care about our neighbors. And I care about so-and-so's grandparent who I've never met. And I know you do too. Mm -hmm. And then, and that's why we're staying home. You think we don't want to go out? <laughs> right. Exactly. Out. Right. Um, but you know, they, they, these are good kids, you yeah. know, it's their job. It is their job to ask for more freedom than we want to grant. And it is our job to say no. Like those are the jobs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I thank you so much. And I mean, you just, I, I could talk to you all day and maybe I'm hoping when I, when, when this is all done and I can get back to my regular questions, <laughs> maybe we could do it again. Sure. Um, I know you're so busy and you have so much to do. And um, I really, I thank you and I'm grateful to your books and your guidance and um, tell everybody where they can find you. We will also do that. But if there's anything you want people to know about what you're doing and what's going on, please let, let them know. Thank you. So, um, so I wrote, I've written two books about um, growing up. One is called Untangled, Guiding Teenage Girls Through the Seven Transitions into Adulthood. And the other one's called Under Pressure, Confronting the Epidemic of Stress and Anxiety in Girls. Um, and though they're both tipped towards girls, I hear all the time that 80% applies to boys, which I think is probably about right. Um, and then I write the monthly adolescence column for the New York Times, and then I contribute regularly to CBS News. So my website, um, which is drlisademore.com, so D-R-L-I-S-A-D-A-M-O-U-R.com, has all my stuff, has all my resources there. And your stuff is phenomenal. My friends, my sister, everybody just, you know, I feel like it's, it's like a parenting Bible in a sense. <laughs> so thank you so much and stay well, stay safe. And hopefully we'll get to chat again another time. That'd be great. Okay. Right. Thank you. Bye-bye.